GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand. Hello, thanks for listening to the Gibraltar Today podcast. I'm Jonathan Scott. The Environmental Safety Group's Janet Howitt told us the port should consider closing bunkering operations in heavy poniente conditions to avoid a repetition of the gas Venus oil spill. And together Gibraltar think that with the right investment, tourism could become a sustainable pillar of our economy. For the first time, John Paul Lugaro discussed the Upper Rock as a spokesperson for the party. But before that, our top story. There was a heated incident at sea on Monday night, just off the South Mole. Jonathan Sacramento joined us with the latest on that developing story. The two videos that we've seen on social media and that we've been able to get hold of are very short, only seven seconds long each. And in those videos, we can see flashing lights. We can see some sort of incident involving two vessels, uh, one being uh, challenged or apprehended or uh, accosted by the other. Uh, And obviously, those videos uh, look very dramatic, they're very shocking, but we don't know what's actually happening in them. Uh, So we've been able to ascertain, uh, since those videos were published on social media or or distributed on WhatsApp, uh, that this involved a vessel belonging to, uh, it's it's a port uh, services vessel belonging to a private company, uh, and it was doing its work in British Gibraltar territorial waters, and it was challenged or uh, uh, chased or accosted by a Spanish customs vessel. Uh, And at some point or other, the Gibraltar Defence Police got involved as well. And this, we understand, happened in British Gibraltar territorial waters just off the South Mole. That's the information that we've been able to 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 ascertain. So eyewitness accounts um, directly to GBC suggest that uh, it, it unfolded just off Rosier Bay and then headed north with blue lights flashing. Uh, so w- when something like this happens, th- there's a lot of speculation. We've heard mentions of potentially rubber bullets being fired, potentially um, Spanish authorities actually uh, boarding the Gibraltar vessel, but we haven't been able to substantiate that at this stage. That, that Those are just uh, social media... Not yet. I'm not saying it's not true, uh, uh, but uh, I, until you hear it from us, and until you hear it from us, uh, th- then at, up until that point, it's just speculation. Uh, and But we will be able to confirm that for you as soon as possible. So we're uh, investigating ourselves. We're speaking to the right people. We know that uh, and, uh, the port is carrying out its own investigation and that it's currently looking at... Uh, well, the the uh, private company... Uh, uh, hasn't commented either. We called them for, for comment. Uh, we also spoke to the Gibraltar government. They have not commented at this stage because they're waiting for detailed reports be- before uh, commenting and deciding what action to take. We've also spoken to the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office and asked them for a comment. Uh, and uh, we are waiting for them to get back to us too. 
The Environmental Safety Group says huge fines must be imposed whenever there's an oil spill to act as a deterrent and to ensure improvements are made. Instead, it says there are some fines, the clean-up costs are covered by the polluter, and a few local companies and departments work frantically to save the environment while bunkering continues until the next oil spill. That's the view of the Environmental Safety Group. And uh, Janet Howitt joins me in the studio now. Good afternoon. Janet, um, why do you say, why do you formulate the the opinion that you have that um, basically I think the fines are currently not enough of a deterrent? Hello, Jonathan. Um, well, um I think it's sort of it's a it's a topic that's discussed quite widely out there when these um events happen um that you know compared to the vast amounts of profits that are made by this industry um that it may not be uh, sufficient to whittle its way down to the actual transactions the actual people on the ground and if if the fines are are are, are Increased dramatically um, on both sides, um, the, 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 the receiving, the client, and the suppliers. Um, we need to see some change to shake this up, to stop the idea that negligence can simply be something that happens, um, but it results in a few seconds of spill to months, if not you know years, of follow-up cleaning, uh, tremendous cost to the environment and to the community. And so something significant has to happen to make change. And that's why usually it's money in the pocket that makes a change. And that's why we're calling for larger fines, among lots of other measures um, that we're putting out there, which is also on the back of the, the spat of oil spills we've seen recently and a lot of discussion from within industry players, people in the cleanups and you know the community who are who are impacted by the oil spills so the oil spill response effort at Roja Bay has been scaled down um, at about the two-week mark since the spill from the gas Venus, uh, the tanker uh, which was uh, in waters just out from Roja, and it comes after a final push by all response teams to remove as much of the residue as possible. What comment would you make of the clean-up effort? I mean, it was incredible. Um, I live just next door as well, so it was very convenient for me to uh, be popping down there every day for lengths of time as I did. Um, The spill itself, you know, uh, was contained in a couple of areas, but it was really thick, really heavy and uh, was a huge problem. And the first 48 hours was, uh, you know, a bit of a panic in how on earth are we going to stop this? Don't forget, it's August. Um, The temperatures also were uh, um, producing fumes that were very, very nauseating and bad for the public. But we're also, you know, um, just next to a couple of very, very busy beaches uh, that did see closure for brief moments. But the reason that they were not closed for a longer time was the quick thinking and the sheer dedication of a few people who led teams to pull in resources from Gibraltar to do a dramatic 
cleanup of oil, uh, which is the first time I've ever seen that. And I've been involved in oil spill cleanups as volunteers for 20 years. So never seen this happen, removing 80% of the of the gloopy, viscous oil from the rock pools that it had covered um, to be dealt with somewhere else. A lot of the stuff was rubble, uh, not natural rock anyway. So there's question marks what's going to happen. But, um, but that action took the 12 to 14 hour days that you've been talking about. But it took human beings being there for that time in temperatures I couldn't cope with. I couldn't stand in that sun. They were um, crawling over these very dangerous rocks, slippery rocks, in a bid to contain, clean and prevent our beaches from being permanently scarred and having to close the beach for the whole summer. Imagine that. Imagine what would have happened if we'd lost Camp Bay as a use for the whole summer. I mean, we're, we're talking about real impacts here. A lot has been talked about the natural environment, and of course that matters to all of us, whether we use campaign or not. But it just shows um, that uh, these spills, however large or small they are, um, impact Gibraltar quite significantly. And of course, uh, the gas Venus spill came on the back of a year of unease uh, and nervousness around the OS35. Some spillage from that stricken bulk carrier, but I think it's fair to say that uh, it could have been much worse. Uh, there was there was a significant, not to downplay the very significant um, uh, sheening that took place on one occasion early on, uh, in in very early September. I remember viewing it from the top of the rock, and and it, and it certainly stretched um, from the OS35, which was out in waters out from Catalan Bay all the way to uh, past uh, Europa Point. But we know that, of, of course, oil can spread very thinly on the surface mm. of, of water. But I, but I think it's right to say, you know, that, that we just, were nervous for a long time about the oil. Yes. Can I just say, I remember those reports, and I think it's really great these days. We have drones, we've got the media covering the, um, the, the problems very quickly, and that really helps everybody mobilize and identify and pin down what's happening. But that sheen was only a part of the problem. We had the heavy fuel oil also affect our beaches and Seven Sisters, which is a protected marine reserve, saw close to eight weeks of cleaning. And we were involved... Sandy Bay was also We were involved in in the Seven Sisters, which is a a very precious, uninhabited area uh, full of marine life. And again, you know, people didn't know about it. That's why we do it as a cleanup every year uh, because it's awkward to get to. But it's full of marine life and it was covered in thick black oil. So um, the OS35 played its part, but it didn't just happen whether the oil was in the water, vigilance, monitoring. We've had um, scores of people from different departments. The Department of Environment has been heavily involved, it has to be said, in monitoring what could happen further from the OS35. You know, and we as a group have been very anxious about it too. But so, you know, days, hours in its departure, we get another oil spill. And, um, you know, anger, I think, is the first thing that people feel. It's, it's a horrendous thing to have to see once you've got rid of a long-term problem. Um, and for me, it's also, you know, caring about our fellow uh, citizens involved in cleaning these these issues. Some of them may be dealing in oil waste anyway, but it doesn't take away the fact that they are facing personal risks in dealing with these cleanups. Um, so that's that's sort of it. And then, of course... Whilst we're still standing in in Rosedale Bay, scaling down as the final vans are, are are pulling up that very steep hill, we learn that there's another incidental minor spill in the port, 
with, you know, bunker barges that could have been involved in others. And, and that's where we call for more transparency and more accountability and more information produced as reports when anything happens. Um, not to apportion blame or whatever, but, you know, you know that a vessel is receiving bunker, you know that a particular company is supplying that bunker, and if those uh, that information was supplied immediately, then perhaps those companies would also feel a little bit more pressure to um, adhere to the protocols which are in place under the Bunkering Code of Practice, which I have a copy of, and I also have studied a lot of other bunkering practices and guidelines uh, around the world. This is a very high-risk operation. Whether there's a spill or not a spill, a normal fuel transaction is a high-risk uh, operation which has got loads of things that you've got to adhere to. But m about a about a dozen happen every day in rural waters on average, no? What do you mean? Oh, oh the uh, transactions. Transactions. Absolutely. And so you're looking at potential... And you think each of those exactly. are high-risk? Well, no, I don't say that. I say the insurance companies that cover bunkering firms regard it as a very high-risk operation and that usually... Um, problems do happen through, you know, technical problems, the valve's not working, whatever, but usually it is human error. And that's why you can't assign responsibility to simply one or two individuals when carrying out such a transaction that has such a potential to cause so much damage. That's why it's described. And the payouts are huge for the insurance firm. So they are in constant discussion with the you say ship they, owners. They're huge, but not sufficient to well, be no, deterrent. But the insurance for them, the payouts for the damage that the oil spills occur. Imagine if we had uh, a huge oil spill here that also affected the bay, with the residents, the businesses, the ecology, everything could be covered in oil here for a long time to come. Imagine the payout the insurance firms would have to deal with. So they're the ones who are also pressing for higher standards to be followed. And we have got a lot of recommendations. A lot of people. Out there, other NGOs <clears throat> and other people, even from within industry, have got also... Um, Let's talk about some of them, because you, you, you published a piece today in the Gibraltar Chronicle, yes. um, which details some, including setting southern anchor points further from the coast, or even eliminating these completely. Yep. You also suggest potentially banning bank bunkering in our waters during poniente conditions, but yep. the poniente conditions are fairly heavy common. Poniente, but heavy, heavy poniente, poniente, heavy poniente conditions, and it was the conditions that were in place when, when gas uh, Venus occurred, the spill, and it was impossible to contain that spill. Everybody could see it; you could see it moving, but it was the waves. It was just impossible to. So the booms were out there, up and down, up and down, but an impossible situation. Of course, it's so close to shore as well the anchor point, that um, combined with the, the conditions at sea, it's the same as with OS35, so much determined what they could do and the speed at which it could be done because of the conditions at sea. So, you know, the, we do not bunker in our port when it's strong gale winds and that. The seas are beautifully empty. Um, but we think that, that added to that should be consideration to ban uh, bunkering on the west side when there's heavy poniente because that makes any incident, it, it amplifies the impact from that and it makes containing and controlling that virtually impossible. So, you know, there will be follow-up uh, discussions with NGOs, the authorities and the port, because people want to talk about what's happened in the last uh, 24 months um, and to see if there can be changes implemented and introduced. So those are a couple of things. Um, you, you think that the port should have uh, a greater supervisory role, uh, but we put that to the captain of the port when he was sitting where you are, yep. um, on the back of a question from a member of the public, and yes, he said... That. And he said that he didn't think that the port has sufficient 
personnel exactly. to exactly. have one person on every bunkering operation. I think he said from memory that there was 12 a day. Yes, exactly. So, but if you're going to be the largest bunkering um, provider in the Med, the bunker, the largest bunkering port in the Med, then surely we should match that with uh, adequate resources, with boats, with bunkering inspections. We should have a very um, energetic uh, complement um, at the port to marry the amount of oil that has been sold here. And if it cannot be funded from within the port, then it's got to be funded by the people who are making the money out of it. I mean, we're just an NGO, you know, but, but we have seen change since 2003 when bunkering uh, uh, increased from 2000 to, for the, in the first 10 years, it increased by 500% without vessel tracking systems, without vapor recovery systems. So we have been battling for these things for change. So when there are further changes, you know, if everything is nice and quiet, we still think it conflicts with our tourism product. We still think it affects our public amenities. Quality it, of life, you've said. In quality the past. of life, you know, I mean, you know, people come here on holiday and they're staring at a load of tankers. It's not ideal. Um, but that aside, when it starts heavily impacting, and of course, we've got to remember that the anchors drag on our seabed, that um, the noise pollution, which is being studied a lot by students at the university, um, is known to be harmful to marine life. And we have uh, a lovely marine life in the bay. So there's a lot of aspects of the bunkering trade, which we have to, we believe, be very honestly and openly reviewed in the way that it operates, in the, benefit that's, in the benefits that it brings to Gibraltar, uh, purse to the individual um, and... Which, which are not insignificant, no? Because if you put to one side... To the, the individual, the not indi- to the businesses. Well, but also to the government. The the, the ports, if, again, working from memory, is, is a profit-making department uh, for the government uh, and bunkering uh, fees would be one of the ways yeah, that, that, that money of pounds. comes it's in. Yeah, it's thousands of pounds, uh, of course. Uh, so, so let me just put that to you, that uh, you are considering that in the round, aren't you? You... Yes, you're, you're considering the economic value that yes, the exactly. industry well, has. Yes, exactly. We always have to, don't we? We always have to. It's like the refinery. When when we we, we took on the refinery, you know, um, and that, you know, how could you shut that down? People were saying, oh, just shut it down. How can you shut it down? But, it, you, you know, when things happen on a regular basis that shows that there are substandard practices because negligence is not, is avoidable, uh, then we really have to sit up and, and take notice and see how much of the profits that have been made out of the trading is really coming back into Gibraltar, even though it is profit, as you're saying, and is that worth the negative impacts that we could suffer if a major oil spill occurred here? That's what we're risking. So, so you think it's a conversation that needs to be had and the bunkering needs to be improved, not that we need to do away with it altogether? Well, you know, uh, we're talking also about trading in oil, which uh, accounts for um, over 80% of our climate change emissions put that in your pipe and smoke it you know uh, it's it's a serious issue which gets lost in all of this you know oh yeah climate change you know um, but it is true we have a the industry is diversifying itself so that will have knock-on effects in Gibraltar but in the meantime you know the barges that operate should have better technology the um, the inspections and the tightening of the protocols should be reviewed and we're going to be pressing for all that we think that there are changes that could happen even if we're not in industry, these things sort of sound like uh, common sense and we'll be pushing for all that. But I wanted to say, uh, uh, and it sounds uh, you know, like it's been said a lot, but having been down on the cleanup um, down at Roja Bay, that it also highlights what an amazing jewel we have there, which is completely abandoned and um, is screaming out for attention. And this oil spill was like uh, the icing on the cake that uh, just shows uh, what we're not doing 
in places that we should really be, um, you know, uh, looking after in Gibraltar. So it's in all our interest to do more and more positive things when these problems occur. And in just a sentence, if you could, I know that you wanted to um, pay tribute to the volunteers who have contributed to the, um, or accompanied the professional cleanup operation. Yeah, I mean, I was concerned, to be honest, um, to see volunteers there because the terrain is is treacherous. Um, there was a lot of oil, uh, very hot, so a lot of fumes. Of course, you know, the, the future, so... Um, it's great to see and hear them uh, profess their their concern and love for for um, for our, our coastline and nature. Um, but we cannot get away from the fact that these uh, particular oil cleanups are treacherous, and uh, we've got to be very careful how we go about them. He's speaking for the first time on behalf of Together Gibraltar. Uh, John Paul Lugaro says, with the right investment, tourism could become the sustainable pillar of our economic strategy, but uh, it's a relatively untapped market at the moment. Uh, good afternoon, Mr. Lugaro, and why do you say that? Well, um, from what I gather and stats show, most of our tourism is uh, day tourism. Um, and the expenditure of tourists as they come in is, is not that high. Um, we have uh, an amazing product up the rock that uh, needs to be developed because what we need to do is give give these tourists an excuse to spend several days exploring it, thus encouraging them to eat in our restaurants, spend in our shops and ho- hotels. So um, with a good product up the rock, I think that... Um, we could really help on our economy uh, and take steps towards becoming more self-sufficient. I want to ask you about what you think we could improve, but let me first uh, address the the, the point that that you're um, speaking on behalf of Together Gibraltar, uh, the political party. You penned a piece in the Gibraltar Chronicle newspaper. Uh, Again, sort of, um, I I think, as a spokesperson on tourism for Together Gibraltar. Uh, This is, uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how this came about. Well, I've been banging the same drum about tourism for quite some time. Um, I'm sure you know I live up the rock. I've been living in the nature reserve for 43 years. So I drive up and down it at least once a day um, with kids and stuff, maybe twice or three times a day. I walk my dogs all over it. I think I'm I'm in the best position to know the Upper Rock. Um, It's been my playground as a boy. Um, So without actually having to say that I've got a degree in tourism. Um, So um, I've talked to many, many people because I want to help. I see the the potential up there, and I don't think it's been developed. And it's a genuine um, intention to to help and to help Gibraltar as a whole. Um, and finally, I've come across a party who's willing to listen and who thinks the ideas are good and there's potential in 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 this line of thought. Okay. So, no, carry on, carry on, please. So, so therefore, yes, I've been speaking with them, and um, they've appointed me um, spokesman in tourism, and. The idea is that um, people will start taking notice and the powers that be will, will take it more seriously and invest in it sooner rather than later so that we can have a long-term strategy to bring tourism to the forefront of our economy and depend more on that than other things. So what, what, how would you describe the current tourism offering insofar as uh, the Upper Rock is concerned? I think it's very poor. I really do. 
Um, the roads are not in good condition. There's no... I don't feel there's such a, a good plan. Um, I'll give you a small example. I live at the top of Green Lane, Devil's Gap. Um, and the ticket office is open till a certain time. Once it closes and the chaps that, that work there leave, the upper rock is pretty much open and I see it every day. Um, tourists waiting for that to close so that they can come up and explore the upper rock. Without having to pay the fee? Without having to pay the fee and with no control for littering, for any perhaps criminal intentions. Um, and it's, it's, it's just, it's just um, lacking in, in structure. Um, the litter problem there is quite big. Um, I see it on a daily basis. But do you think that's tourists? Or do you think that, uh, it's a, that's combination. a combination of... But to be honest, if we had a good tourist product in place with a 24-hour security guard service, which I think would be essential to, to develop this product, then th this could be controlled. Uh, litter wardens. Um, and basically after a certain time, um, tourists and residents alike, once a nature reserve closes, as it's supposed to, at 10, shouldn't be allowed to be up there. And this would get rid of most of the, of the problems that are up there. But you run a business with another hat on. Do you think that from a business perspective, um, it, it would make financial sense to have uh, the extent of monitoring that, that you've referenced? I think you said 24-hour uh, monitoring and, and sort of checking on, on issues such as uh, littering and, and, and potentially vandalism? Well, if you change the system, yes, because... Um, one of my points is that um, day tourism is is the main um, source of source of tourism of the rock. Um, but if we develop the product to give tourists a need to spend five days exploring the upper rock because there is so much to see, which there would be with the right um, project, um, then there would be a need to have the twenty four hour security, and there would be um, the money coming in. Uh, to sustain that. Um, for example, the, the, the tickets to the Upper Rock are, are, are all inclusive and you're allowed into all the sites. But there are s several sites, but they're limited. Now, if we had 10, 20 sites, which is very possible, all with a different um, price system to get in after the generic um, price to get up the rock, then tourists may pay for a day, they may pay for a week, and then at every site they'd have a different entrance fee. Again, look, this is an idea. Everything I talk about, all my ideas, would need a feasibility study. But we have a huge uh, product up there, we have a large area um, covered in, I say, whooshes, really, and olive trees, um, which are breaking walls, breaking rocks, causing rockfalls. Um, so, um, with the right team in place, investigating all the sites and studying the possibility of, of different um, attractions, then, yes, because we'd, we'd have to create the infrastructure, we'd have to have the hotels, transport system, um, and we'd have more restaurants, hopefully, more bars, um, you know, there's, there's, there's gimmicks and, and stuff, but everything helps. You know, you go to many other places in the world and you think, oh, Capri has these blue caves, which is basically the light shining in the sea and illuminating the cave in blue. And people pay to see that. And they've been to Capri, Capri to see the blue caves. And that's one thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you go to the Amalfi Coast because they have all the lemon trees. 
and they produce great limoncello and ice cream sorbet. And then it's a small little town, beautiful, with a cathedral and the beach. But millions of people flock there. And amazing there. gelato, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But many people flock there. And I think that Gibraltar is in a better position to have many more products. Imagine being charged five pounds to do the med steps, and if you do it in less than half an hour, you get a free pint at the top because there's a bar overlooking the straits. Again, the, so the environmentalists may not be in favor, but as, as I say, these are ideas. You know, they're expanding, the intention is to expand the cable car top station, which could be absolutely beautiful. Uh, they had a quality restaurant there, but there are many areas that have been left to, to lay fallow. Um, and with the right sort of um, system to care for them and treat them, um, then it could be explored by many people. English Path in March when the freezes are out, which is beautifully, mm. you know, and that's one of many. St. Michael's Path, um, uh, St. Uh, Amelia's Battery, Princess Anne's Battery. In fairness to the government, they, they have created more... Um, signage and, and made clearer and made safe some of these walking routes no? and right. I, I think there are more anecdotally more walkers heading up you see quite a few sort of hikers in the hiking boots walking up Devil's Gap steps um, I mean, look, certainly the I last most time, people visit in, in taxis and buses as you said but, but signage isn't signage isn't the answer I can put a sign for anything but if the place is not maintained what's the point of having a sign um, I remember excuse me, when English Path was um, cleared and they did a relatively good job um, and people still look for English Path but now English Path, the, walls, the, the boundary wall from Brewster's Farm is corroding and it's falling onto English Path making it a bit treacherous um, so, and it's not being maintained the, the, the foliage is overgrowing and the, the path isn't as clear I mean, it needs regular maintenance so, um, and that's one path. There are many more. Um, again, it's not about this government. Um, it's not um, an antagonistic view on, on who's in control now. This has happened from day one. I mean, the Nature Reserve was established in 88, more or less. I was a boy, I uh, can't remember. Everybody since hasn't sort of seen it as... What I see is the potential um, economic staple of Gibraltar. So, so you think that uh, with all of these ideas, uh, you, you, you said earlier that a feasibility study would be needed, but you get the sense that with the right investment, yes, it would cost money in the short term, but in the medium to long term, it would make economic sense? Without a doubt. Without a doubt, I understand that um, the, right now finances are, are tough because we've just been through, let's face it, we, we, we've been through COVID. Um, we are facing um, the uncertain future of Brexit. Um, but there are ways of, of, of obtaining the funding or perhaps put it out to tender and give a company who wishes to invest a model and say, look, I will give you a 20-year lease. You have to develop this and a percentage of that is for the company, over 20 years, they will make the money and a profit, and so will the government. Um, and give them the model that you want. This is what we want. Um, and I'm sure that in the long term, it'll be uh, financially beneficial. And not just that, but for the future. Because once the money is recovered, you know, you have a great tourist product, which, if run properly, you know, um, will, will go on hopefully forever. Um, we have a university. Well, maybe there should be a school of tourism in there. If there isn't already one, if there is, I'm very sorry. I don't think so. Oh, well, 
And, you know, Perfect. and maybe some of the local students, instead of wanting to go to the UK, will want to study here because they know that they have, they have a career doing something that they feel passionate about, like I may have done. Um, and all this contributes. You create jobs um, all over the Upper Rock and you create a product that people will come and spend a week exploring. Can I ask you, do you expect to uh, stand at the next election? That's not something I've seriously considered. Um, that is m not my intention. My intention has been to focus on the tourist product and to help. And I hope that people are listening. And if Together Gibraltar does play a part in the next government, they'll start um, putting a 10-year plan together so that we can actually develop the tourist product and make it a sustainable feature for Gibraltar. Thank you for joining us this afternoon and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to those highlights from Gibraltar Today. I'm Kelly M. Borge, the show's producer. We're live on Radio Gibraltar Monday to Friday from 1 to 2, getting behind the headlines. And you can catch up here whenever you like. Until next time, have a good one. GBC Podcasts. Local voices on demand.